Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Lowe Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yay! It's the Spark Parade, a show where I talk to amazing people about the art and culture that's shaped their lives. I'm Adam Unz. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm back from vacation. Aren't you thrilled? It's been a long time. I shouldn't have left you without a dope beat to step to, etc. Anyway, I've got a real doozy of an episode for you to make up for my extremely inconsiderate absence. I'm going to be chatting to internationally acclaimed Pulitzer Prize finalist and Obie Award-winning playwright Christopher Shin about his love for Stanley Kubrick's final film Eyes Wide Shut. Chris and I really dug into this movie, and it's a longer chat than most episodes. So I'm going to spare you my usual pre-interview ramblings this time, and we're just gonna dive the fuck in. Don't cry if you love my ramblings. They'll be back next week. I know I've thrown a lot of change at you recently, what with going on vacation and skipping the intro, but life is full of change, so let's all embrace it together, shall we? Take my hand and let's march towards this brave new world together. You're going to love it. I promise. So here comes my chat with Christopher Shin about Eyes Wide Shut. So, Eyes Wide Shut. Do you did you see it in the theater when it I first came out? I did see it when it came out. Mhm. To my mind, my memory of it is like being uh, entertainment obsessive, reading like Entertainment Weekly and seeing all the updates for the two years of production. And it was this huge, intense buildup. The fact that he was working with Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise and all of the rumors coming out of the set and everything. And then obviously the fact that he'd died before the film came out. And it was like this intense, intense, intense everybody wanting to know what this film was going to be. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's kind of hard to remember. I was 24. It's a long time mm-hmm. ago now. It's 20 years ago. Fuck. And kind of before the internet. I mean, the internet existed, but we weren't all like on it all the time. So yeah, there was a lot of like reading in magazines about mm-hmm. this movie <laughs> called Eyes Wide Shut. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I remember the hype around it being quite extensive. And, and I'm, I'm almost positive I went opening weekend to see it because the buildup really was extraordinary. I mean, I think it was the longest continuous film shoot in history. Yeah. I mean, that alone is extraordinary. And, you know, two of the biggest stars of the time in the movie. And as you said, Kubrick's death. I mean, there, there was an extraordinary mythology around it. But we also didn't know much about it. I mean, I don't, I don't think people really did know much about it. Yeah. 
I don't really remember the content of the reviews, but I remember like peeking at the reviews when, when you know, on the Friday that the movie came out, just because to, to even know that people had seen it was a big deal. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, it had that kind of aura of just profound mystery. Yeah. Which you don't really get. It's pretty rare to have that today, I think. Yeah. Which I guess is maybe a byproduct of the internet as well, but like leaks coming from sets happen a lot more and script leaks and whatever. So it's harder to really have no knowledge of films. And I also feel like trailers and uh, promotional information is not as careful to preserve mystery or that there are fewer directors who are in- invested in preserving mystery around their films before they I come out. I think that is definitely right. I mean, I remember I-, I didn't go back and look at it. Maybe I should have before we did this, but wasn't the trailer just like a scene from mm-hmm. Eyes Wide Shot? It was like yeah. the the mirror scene maybe with, you know, Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman and the Chris Isaac song playing. Yeah, that sounds right. I, yeah. I didn't see it. Pretty sure. I mean, I have a memory of like the trailer being one scene. Mm-hmm. The two of them naked in the mirror, looking at each other, kissing and that song playing. Yeah. Yeah. How did you feel about it the first time that you saw it? Well, I think, I mean, I was, I remember I went to see it with my roommate at the time who was a very, he was straight. I think he had real issues with women and sexuality. He was very grandiose and very powerful in his mind. But I also sort of deferred to him in significant ways. So I think I had my private experience of the movie as we watched it. And it was a very strange movie. And again, because nobody had seen it uh, and there was very little advanced intelligence about it, it really was an experience that was completely novel as you watched it. So I, I think I did, I mean, I wish I could remember more vividly, but I remember having my own kind of private experience. And I remember as soon as the movie was over, my then roommate turned to me and grabbed my arm and said something like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> he just hated it, you know? Mm. And I didn't, I hadn't really no, I hadn't really made up my mind. I hadn't really known what I felt. Like, I mean, I think because it's a genuine work of art, you don't really know when it's over, like what to feel. So I didn't really know what to say. Like, I didn't have the strength to say, oh, I don't know, you know. Um, but I thought that was interesting. Or I'm still figuring out what I thought. I kind of went with his energy, which was that sucked. What mm-hmm. the fuck was that? Uh, what a piece of shit. And he was just super jazzed. He was like so excited to dislike it, to hate Stanley Kubrick's last movie. And I kind of just, I think, kind of shut up about it and kind of let his energy be be dominant on the on the ride home to the apartment. Um, and I wish I could remember the next time I saw it, but obviously it lingered in my memory in a way where I thought, even though I'm not sure how I felt about this movie, there's something in it that captivated me. And so I should check it out again someday. And And... I don't know when my second viewing was. I think probably by now there's at least eight or nine, probably more, maybe even Mm -hmm. a dozen. But yeah, something got me to that movie a second time. And the second time led to a third and the third to a fourth and, you know, on and on. And I just watched it again in advance of our doing this. Mm. Yeah. And I I don't know if this was a factor for you in terms of repeated viewings, but I know it wasn't like critics hated it when it was first released, but the reception was pretty mixed. And I think the reception has evolved to be much warmer and people appreciate it much more now than when it first came out. And also having absolutely no idea what to expect. And even for Kubrick, who 
could make films that were a little bit more had room for interpretation that this feels like compared to something like The Shining or Dr. Strangelove, things like that, that there's this more solid narrative structure that somebody who doesn't care about auteurism um, can appreciate, just like go and see it and treat it as a popcorn movie. And with this, it was like the antithesis of that. Yeah. So I think, you know, the expectations going into it may have been like the last film that he'd made was film Full Metal Jacket, which again is something that I think even people who don't appreciate some of his more difficult work could say like, that's an awesome movie. And this was a completely different planet. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I think too, I mean, I guess the one thing you did hear about in advance of the movie was that it was about sex or mm-hmm. sex was really central to it. And when you watch it, it, it really isn't. I mean, mm-hmm. it is about intimacy, sexuality, desire. I mean, it's completely about those things, but it's not hot. I don't yeah, think it's yeah. not sexy. Mm-hmm. It's very contemplative. It's very restrained. Mm-hmm. It's very, I mean, even the orgy scene is very stylized, you know. So I think there might have been just some sort of letdown for some people watching it. Like, this is not a sexy movie, yeah. you know. Uh, it's very serious, strange, deep dark so yeah you know you had no expectations of it other than maybe oh this is going to be transgressive and illicit in some way and what you get is this very uh, deep psychological portrait of a very repressed man who when faced with his wife being less repressed being able to talk about a sexual fantasy she has outside of the marriage and able in general i think to express more emotion than he's capable of this display from his wife leads this man into this adventure in the city where he's searching for feeling and desire and sexuality but you know he's not really finding it what he's finding is his psyche and he's finding what his emotional limitations are and what his traumas are so yeah it's a very it's just a very strange movie and i think maybe especially given how people thought of tom cruise i mean i don't know if people have ever thought of him as especially sexy but he's handsome he's Mm -hmm. charismatic we're not used i don't think we were really used to him playing these like deep contemplative parts Mm -hmm. you know that require a lot of inwardness so i think too it was kind of strange watching an actor do something we we hadn't seen him do before Mm -hmm. somebody who was so famous at that time yeah And thinking back, I'm almost certain the stuff that people did know about the film before it came out, maybe something about the orgy scene happening, definitely stuff about like rumors of Kubrick hiring an intimacy coach for Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise because they didn't have any on-screen chemistry, basically. (laughs) But that kind of stuff, I think there was this idea that it wasn't going to be a film that had sex as like a touchstone issue but that was focused on depictions of sex right and so that i remember thinking like that orgy scene that i'd thought was going to be this like absolutely scandalous thing was just like oh like so what like that's not yeah or, or not so what but just it's not sexy it's not you know i wasn't scandalized in any way i wonder how people who are just kind of average moviegoers responded to that the first time it's probably a lot of what the fuck yeah i mean and maybe he wanted it 
that mm. way. I mean, I guess if, if you really wanted, I mean, I feel like Kubrick really wants, I mean, I've seen this movie, like I said, probably up to a dozen times. And every time I discover new things, it's that cliche. Mm. Every time I see it, I learn something new. But I, I wonder if maybe he was happy to have that be the PR around the movie before it came out. Because I think Kubrick wants to unsettle you and confuse you and disrupt your expectations and your hopes. Going into that movie thinking it's going to be a lot of hot sex definitely is a way of putting you in the wrong mindset mm-hmm. and really forcing you to be like, wait, what? why is this happening? Yeah. Why is this orgy seemingly uh, like some kind of bizarre cult-like ritual that has nothing to do with sex. And, you know, that's just maybe the most obvious example. But everything, every moment of sexuality in that movie, there's something else that gets in the way, that interrupts Mm -hmm. it, you know, that complicates it. And it feels very deliberate to me that Mm -hmm. he wants you to think about desire and sex in a way that you don't want to think about it. Yeah, and that, that is an interesting thought as well. But this is somebody who's famous for obsessive intentionality. Like his whole world was about detail and purpose and that he, there were no mistakes. Yeah, just knowing that he was not someone who ever let things happen by chance. Yeah. So yeah, it makes sense that even the campaign leading up to the release of the film that he would perhaps want people to, you know, he, he, he knew what he wanted people to think before, yeah. before they came into it. Yeah. So the first chunk is really the relationship between the two lead characters, the couple. Very interesting having somebody who is considered, like you said, even if he wasn't a bit, somebody who's necessarily a sexy Hollywood star, it's like young, virile, this like embodiment of... American masculinity who was actually married to his co-star. So it's a real relationship and examining sexuality, relationship dynamics, all of those things with those people specifically. Do you remember thinking on repeated viewings, you started to consider those issues as you were watching it? Well, I mean, I think even at the time you had to think about Tom and Nicole as a married couple. I mean, I think it was known right, that he was a Scientologist at mm-hmm. that point. There were rumors about him being gay. So I think you were you had to watch the movie on a kind of double level. It was like the movie that you're watching these characters uh, and taking them at face value as characters, but then you're also watching a real-life married couple and trying to deduce what you can about their marriage. I assume the reason Kubrick wanted to use a married couple was so that you would wonder, how real is this? Is this acting or is this real? And what is the nature of intimacy and reality? Mm -hmm. If intimacy is always kind of a performance, how can you even tell the difference between the characters they're playing and the the real people? I know he considered Alec Baldwin and convey singer mm-hmm. at one point right mm-hmm. when they were married yeah very different movie <laughs> yeah uh certainly tom uh woody allen would be a very different movie mm-hmm. uh steve martin steve martin well. i read yeah. that mm-hmm. i mean i think what i take from all that is that i mean i think he optioned the novel like you know 
decades before he made the movie. So yeah, he he had various versions of the movie in his head at different times. So it, it seems like it was very personal to him. And I think I read somewhere that in the apartment that Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise live in in the, in the movie, uh, I think his name is Bill Harford, where the Harfords live, is there's like a stack of Stanley Kubrick movies in one of the shots. So I think he identified with this character and maybe the different actors he envisioned were the different ways he saw himself and his own desire. The apartment is, the set was based on the apartment he lived in with his really? wife in New yeah. York. Um, so that, that makes sense too, that like kind of immersing these characters in his world. I mean, it's, so it's interesting to imagine maybe when he was younger and he still, sex was on his mind more and desire was on his mind more. Maybe he kind of saw it as a kind of erotic comedy. But as he got older and closer to dying and he literally died what four days after the final cut of the movie showing the the tom cruise and nicole kibben the, the cut yeah maybe as he got older desire became a, a more serious somber subject for him i mean the movie feels very sad to me but yeah i mean i i think of the beginning of that movie i mean it's like you have these scenes of domestic kind of busyness as as they're getting ready to go to this fancy party and then you see them at this party which sydney pollock plays a wealthy man throwing this huge Christmas party. And Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman are separated, as happens at parties, and they both kind of fall into these flirtations that, you know, feel like they could lead to sex. And both of them shy away from it. And uh, I guess this is spoilers for anybody who's not seen the movie, but uh, very early in the movie, you know, there's like the first real invasion of something very frightening or upsetting in the realm of sexuality. And that basically, Sidney Pollack has one of his henchmen call down Tom Cruise uh, to come up to the bathroom where this former model or Miss New York or you know some mm-hmm. beautiful woman has overdosed. She's completely naked. And he's obviously worried she you know might be dying. Tom Cruise checks her out and, and makes sure she's okay and gets home okay. So you know you have in a very short span the kind of uh, I think all the themes of the the movie that you know will go on to explore in more depth. But you have the kind of promise and excitement of sexuality, and then the specter of death and mm-hmm. destruction uh, alongside that. And you know the experience at the party when they get home from the party, they smoke marijuana and they get into this conversation in which these resentments and this sort of very uh, amorphous anger just sort of emerges from Nicole Kidman. I found it very mysterious watching it again. I was like, this scene, I mean, part of me wants to say it's not a great scene, that like the scenes between the two of them are maybe the most dated in a certain sense. It feels like, I don't know, maybe they didn't have the intimacy as a real couple required to really make those scenes fully as powerful as they would want to be in, in, you know, a perfect work of art. But I still think something really dynamic is happening in them where Mm. she seems angry at her husband's repression. That's how I read it, that she's less repressed. She's more in touch with her sexual desire for others. And it just enrages her that Mm -hmm. her husband is so kind of by the book. And that maybe the, the reason I kind of hooked into that reading this time was maybe that was their real I mean, Tom Cruise as a person seems psychotically disciplined. I mean, this is somebody who you know does all his own stunts and trains. Like he's so driven to perform a certain way. And if you look at some of the crazy Scientology stuff, 
that he sees himself as good, mm-hmm. as right, as a hero, you know. And in that scene, you know, he's denying desire for others. And he's, he's very kind of just rigid in how he sees marriage and sexuality. And it just seems to infuriate her, you know. And she has her kind of crazy monologue, kind of mocking him and, uh, you know, belittling him and eventually, you know, revealing her desire for this Marine uh, or sailor. I forget exactly what what branch of the military he was in. And it seems to really, you know, get under Tom Cruise's skin. And then the rest of the movie is really him trying to locate sexual excitement in the way that his wife demonstrated she she experiences it. Mm -hmm. Sort of watch him try to find an adventure where he can, I read it as become unrepressed, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that's fascinating. I mean, not everybody is repressed as that character, but what I find fascinating about that journey and the reason maybe it could have been a comedy at one point is that I think it's like the structure of desire. It's always that there's some experience that would be exciting or fulfilling that others are having whether it's your wife or your friend who threw this party or the, you know, the women you were almost slept with at the party, but that others are doing the thing and that you're not doing. But if you can find it, something really great will happen. It's going to be just amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and so we watch him search for it the rest of the movie and he can't find it Yeah. over and over. Yeah. And it is in some ways just like this gigantic case of cinematic blue balls. And that makes the last line of the film even more made me feel like Nicole Kidman's character is so in tune with where she sees the problem in their relationship. Yeah. And it's like, she sees his repression. He, in my mind, it always felt like such a massive overreaction that she tells him about this fantasy. And it's like, you think about other men when he clearly, I mean, she calls him on it too. And is saying, you're clearly doing the same thing. You were flirting with those other women and all of that. But then at the end, when he's had this, night of just like insane things happening but again in terms of meeting his goal at the beginning which i guess is to cheat on her or to have some kind of sexual experience outside of the marriage nothing happens yeah and then they have this deep chat about all these weird and terrible things that have happened to him throughout the night and take their daughter to the toy store and you know the very last part of the movie sorry again spoilers but saying i love you and there's one thing that we need to do. And he's like, what's that? Fuck. Blackout. <laughs> Just <Yeah>. like, exactly. <laughs> it's an amazing ending. I mean, you know, listening to you talk about it, it just sounds obvious, but I don't, there's no, Tom Cruise has no orgasm anywhere in the movie. So it is literally anticlimactic, right? In that way, that there is no release. And maybe that's the reason people didn't like the movie. Mm. A lot of critics didn't like it. Some audiences were like, what was that? that you're used to there being some kind of cathartic payoff on the Mm -hmm. hero's journey, right? I mean, watching this man go in quest of an experience that will release him uh, emotionally and physically from the tension that he feels. And he just never has it. Right. Um, If anything, the tension increases. And even like Nicole Kidman's solution to the tension (laughs) in their marriage is a cathartic one. We don't see it right. and the movie ends right. with that kind of smash to black there, yeah. as you say. And and it's really it's really interesting, you know, because he I mean, I think that's why because you're right. He does flirt with those women, certainly, which suggests he's not fully repressed. But it, his reaction to her, it does seem that she's allowed herself maybe to follow the fantasy further in her mind. 
you know, she talks about the fantasy of this naval officer. It, it seems like it, it was a very elaborate mm-hmm. fantasy and that one that, you know, she dreams about it. She still remembers it. Uh, he doesn't seem to have anything like that, right? There's not mm-hmm. like, it's not like he calls up some woman he knows after hearing the story and is like, you know what? We've flirted for a long time. My wife has this, you know, something going on. Let's, let's just get together. You know, right. he doesn't have anything. He doesn't have anybody. It, it feels like he hasn't ever unlocked that part of his mind. Mm-hmm. You know, he hasn't really let it. So I, I guess I look back to the earlier scene where he's with these two beautiful women at, at Sidney Pollock's party as just as far as he ever goes. Mm-hmm. You know, he's charming. He's handsome. Women like him. He's a doctor. But, he doesn't let it go further than that in his yeah. mind. Yeah. Um, and so then we watch him. We watch him try. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think all, you know, we could pick any of those adventures to to talk about. But they're all so interesting. They're mm-hmm. all so vivid. And, you know, the, the famous one, which I'm sure we'll get to, is the orgy. But there's lots of little smaller ones mm-hmm. all along the way that, that are incredibly compelling. Yeah. Like the encounters with the the two encounters with the sex workers the one who he meets towards the beginning and then her roommate who he meets towards the end those situations as well it, it all kind of fits into the same thing that it's like he wants to be full of desire and wants to he wants to experience the same thing that his wife described to him but his repression gets in the way or just circumstances get in the way or he ends up feeling guilty or whatever there's always something that stops him from kind of pursuing anything and he's he's trying to go further he's trying to have like real life sexual experiences that his wife didn't have it's like the idea of her having these vivid fantasies makes him so insane that he feels like he needs to make those fantasies a reality for himself yeah i think that the difference between fantasy and reality i think is one of the things the movie's about where he he has trouble distinguishing, you know, between the two. And I mean, I, I assume that's where the title of the movie comes from, mm-hmm. that desire makes us shut our eyes to other realities. You know, the, 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 the fantasy that desire can deliver us to some amazing place is so strong that our eyes are shut. They're wide shut. So we see reality intervene, as you say, in all these different ways. I mean, I guess... Because this is a podcast about talking about works of art, you can just not worry about spoilers. But, you know, the sex worker he almost sleeps with then learns, we hear from her roommate, that she's HIV positive. He goes to the apartment of a woman whose father's died. She treat, he he mm-hmm. treated her father. And literally, as the corpse is on the bed, the woman makes a pass at him. Mm-hmm. Like desire and death mm-hmm. seem hand in hand throughout yeah. the movie at the orgy somebody he sees at the orgy turns up dead shortly thereafter wherever there is sex in the movie there seems to be death not far behind right and so that feels like kubrick is saying something about that that desire and fantasy are one thing when they remain at the level of imagination but when you translate the fantasy into reality all this other stuff comes in you know and watching him discover that you know nicole kimmon doesn't have to discover that because she just has the fantasy right but we don't see what would happen if she tried to sleep with the naval officer or she did have the affair you know she has kept it on the level of fantasy mm-hmm. so we don't we don't really know but with him we see him trying to make it 
actual, and we see that it's always more complicated when you do that. Yeah. And also, just going back to the real relationship between Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, that the blurring of the lines between fantasy and reality extends to the production as well. And so even just mentioning that I rumor that there'd been this intimacy coach hired for the film, there's a lot of speculation about Stanley Kubrick picking them specifically because there was so much speculation about their relationship and nobody knew if their relationship as a whole was fantasy or reality and if it was something you know there are always rumors about him again being gay and that it was like a contracted relationship through the church of scientology so that he had a wife to present to the public because he was a movie star and maybe that idea of having an intimacy coach could have been something that kubrick threw out to get people thinking about those ideas before they watched the film and kind of set the scene all these rich ideas in the film itself that cross over into the real world and just add this like extra dimension of mind fuckery (laughs) yeah i mean i don't know obviously we don't know how it was envisioned before tom cruise was hired but you know there's the scene where a bunch of college guys bump into tom cruise in the street and yell homophobic slurs at him and I remember at the time thinking, wow, like searching Tom Cruise's face for, is there any personal resonance there? Like, right. do we see a moment where it's like Tom Cruise hearing the word faggot applied to him rather than Dr. Harford hear, hearing the word faggot applied to his character there? Uh, and then there's this amazing scene. I think one of the great scenes in the movie, Tom Cruise kind of trying to find out what happened to his buddy who played piano at the orgy that that he uh, disastrously attended. Mm -hmm. And he goes to the hotel where his friend was staying to get info. And Alan Cumming plays the hotel attendant, the desk attendant. And Alan Cumming is so sexual in how he plays the character. He's flirting with Tom Cruise very aggressively. And again, it's a scene where knowing all these rumors that Tom Cruise is gay, you, you watch trying to think, is Tom gay, you know, and can I see that on his face anywhere? Yeah. Um, So I, you know, again, maybe it was always written that way. The desk attendant always flirted with, you know, the main character, regardless of who it was going to be. But I have a feeling that given how meticulous Kubrick was, you know, everything was deeply thought through and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, to hire one of the, you know, uh, Alan Cummings, in terms of big stars, probably one of the least repressed stars around Mm -hmm. tom cruise one of the most you know you know and alan is gay you know you you feel that tension Mm -hmm. like there's two there's the the level of the movie to watch this and then the level of two real people interacting together caught on film so i think you're absolutely right that kubrick had just a profound sense of all the different ways the movie would resonate with tom cruise in that lead role yeah and you know i've read we can talk about the insane conspiracy theory factory (laughs) surrounding this film but one of the less convincing conspiracy theories is that kubrick made this film with tom cruise to specifically to like torture him and that it was about finding as many ways as possible to make him uncomfortable and kind of destroy him and i think there there may be an element of that that's closer to reality i i know that Kubrick's method, part of the reason why he did so many takes is that he felt doing a million takes was the only way to break down an actor and get them to like the essence of themselves and of the character 
and that if you only do two takes you're just getting the kind of surface level stuff the stuff that they planned and he wants spontaneity he wants like exciting unusual things to come out and he it's like he knows it when he sees it and he'll keep pushing until he gets it and it's a very interesting another interesting element of, of choosing tom cruise is that it's the star who's known for being a real go-getter being a people pleaser wanting to be very servile when it comes to fawning over directors wanting them to love him wanting to you know be seen as a real team player and working with a director who completely rejects all of that bullshit it's and it's the antithesis of what he's looking for from actors yeah so that may have something to do with how long the shoot was as well, that he was like really determined to break down Tom Cruise. And, what, and didn't they have to sign a contract that they had to make the movie as long as Kubrick wanted yeah, to? Yeah. Like, there was no end. There was mm-hmm. no out. It was like, as long as it takes, you have to do it. Yeah. That's was, amazing. Yeah. And I was reading stuff about Kubrick hadn't made a film in 12 years. He had no, nothing else going on. <laughs> he had nothing else to do. But both Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman lost probably you know 20 million dollars every six months or something because they're at the height of both of their careers yeah i mean imagine making a movie for over a year every day and it's not you know it's a long movie but it's not a seven hour movie i mean it's pretty contained Mm -hmm. you know there's the sequences are pretty tight so yeah you can imagine if that took 400 days plus to shoot it must have been completely exhausting psychologically to do that. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe he did want to see what, you know, this actor is incredibly well defended psychologically. What happens if I really, really push him? What, Mm -hmm. what is underneath there? And I think it's a magnificent performance. I find it to be captivating. I've seen it so many times now and I always, find it very that something very authentic is happening and i think his public persona like in interviews especially at that time was felt very repressed or very carefully manicured but seeing him play a part where it's somebody who is repressed but kind of broken by their repression um not you know not this hyper masculine glossy muscly movie star yeah and that was another thing. It was at a time period where it was like he would, in every movie he made, it felt like any excuse to like get, t- take off his top and, yeah. you know, flex his muscles and show how ripped he is. And there just wasn't room for that. There's not that. I mean, the only time I think you really see him even with his shirt off is in that early bedroom scene. Mm-hmm. And he's in black underwear. And he looks, I mean, he looks, he's obviously in shape, but he looks like a person. Mm-hmm. And it's very strange for that reason. I think you were so used to seeing him at the time. If he had his shirt off, he was doing something hyper-masculine and heroic. And this is him sitting on a bed, kind of hunched over, and his wife is sort of performing this, you know, taunting monologue after smoking a joint. And it's very vulnerable. You know, mm-hmm. it's really very human. And you can tell that he trusted Kubrick. I think, you know, you can tell he trusted him, that Cruz really trusted Kubrick. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like an actor completely giving himself over to a director's intentions. So, you know, well, I guess we'll never know if Tom had any kind of psychological break during that filming. But you don't if he did, you don't see it. I mean, it feels like a like an actor and a director working in tandem. He definitely had ulcers during the filming. So I know, you know, even if he was determined not to have the public perception be that he was having a tough time with it. He also talks about like hiding 
the fact that the ulcers had developed from wow. Kubrick because you knew that he would. But that's amazing. Tom Cruise talked about having ulcers. Yeah. Because I feel like that's very anti-Scientology, right? Like when you reach his level in Scientology, you're supposed to have transcended those kinds of mm-hmm. physical. But maybe he was not OT8 at that point. It was 20 years <laughs> yes. ago. You know, was... Yeah, yeah. Still working his way up. Is it the ladder? Is up the ladder, ladder? Yeah, yes. yeah. Ladder. The ladder to total freedom. Yes. <laughs> so outside of just that relationship between those two characters, also the tremendous amount of symbolism. I think this is the case with all Kubrick movies again that it's like you know meticulous attention to detail and not leaving anything up to chance but lots of subtle or not so subtle allusions to the Illuminati or you know something of that ilk and we spoke about this a little bit before but it's interesting thinking of it in the context of all of the Jeffrey Epstein stuff um, that's happening now that the secret society, I think, gets a lot of attention, yeah. in especially in hindsight, in uh, more contemporary viewings of that film. And how did you experience that over your repeated viewings? Well, it's amazing to see Sidney Pollock. I mean, Sidney Pollock is just extraordinary in the movie. Mm. And I think that last scene with him and Tom Cruise has to be one of the best things I've ever seen in a movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, it's like a 15-plus minute two-hander, you know, in a room. It's like a play almost. And the I think it's so rare in movies that you see wealthy, powerful people portrayed in any way like they actually are. So there's something just kind of stunning about the ease with which Sidney Pollack moves through that immensely privileged landscape and that gorgeous apartment he has and this amazing billiards room, Mm -hmm. 25 year old scotch. And, you know, it's just the absolute entitlement, the relaxed, thoughtless entitlement that he shows in that scene is remarkable. And I think if you were to try to think, you know, he's basically, so people uh, who don't know the movie have a sense of what the scene is. Tom Cruise went to this orgy and was sort of called out at the orgy. He wasn't invited. He found out the password and snuck in, essentially. And he's exposed uh, for not belonging there. And it seems like he might get in some trouble. And then a woman uh, at this orgy, everybody's in masks. Nobody can see anybody uh, who they are. But Tom Cruise does have to take his mask off after he's been caught. This woman offers to suffer whatever punishment he was about to suffer. And he is able to go. And Sidney Pollack, I think the character's name is Ziegler, calls him to his house the next day and says, look, I was there. I know what happened. You know, you, you were in a lot of trouble. You need to stop. Uh, and uh, he says something like, if you knew who the people in that room, if you knew the names of the people in that room, I'm not going to tell you the names of the people in that room. But if you knew, you know, uh, you'd be scared. You, you know, you'd be, you'd understand why you're in danger. We don't see any of them, and maybe that's why Kubrick had them in masks. It would have been maybe comical to see kind of cliche-looking politicians and things, but it really evokes Jeffrey Epstein. And when you you know read like who went to his island and who was on his plane, and Bill Clinton, and Donald Trump, and, and Alan Dershowitz, and Stephen Pinker. I mean, just this like 
the who's who of the elite in every industry, not just politics, but show business and law and uh, science, Steven Pinker's case, I mean, it's really, really remarkable. And we know that, you know, I've seen trafficked young women, girls. So we have to assume that there was at least some sexual activity at some of these gatherings. It wasn't just Jeffrey Epstein doing evil things in isolation. You know, we don't know the extent of it yet, but, uh, you know, what we learned about the Catholic Church and, you know, it, it seems like there's a lot of sexual corruption in this world and a lot of it takes place in very elite, secret, closed environments. And we, the Epstein case threatens to reveal, you know, that significant members of our society were engaged in illegal activity. So, you know, watching that sequence today, I mean, obviously, I think we all know that orgies in real life don't aren't like that. They're not mm -hmm. like highly stylized, ritualized, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, masked costumed affairs with droning music playing and, you mm -hmm. know, elaborate incense rituals, you know. But I think what the theatricality of that sequence does is it captures maybe the feeling of what these things are, that they're secret, they are mysterious, they're hidden, they're protected. We, for how long Epstein's been doing this, it's taken us a, a quite a long time to figure it out, right? To, to, to have the, the mainstream really pay attention to it. I mean, he was got in trouble with the law years ago, but it, you know, it, it, he was able to recover and, and move back into, you know, into elite society. So I think, yeah, looking at it today, it feels like Kubrick understood that there's something about elites, secrecy, sexuality, wealth, ritual, that, you know, that there's, there's something quite, it's not just about the primal pleasure of objectifying and exploiting sex objects, that there's a, a whole kind of structure around it that meant to inflate one's sense of importance and one's sense of transgression and elitism. So I think the sequence does that brilliantly. And I think at the time, you know, people made fun of it. Like, it's not sexy. And like, what is this? It's crazy. Nothing like this could ever happen. But I think, you know, the, again, that Kubrick had had a, a sense of a deeper truth. Yeah. And it wasn't just a movie about sex. It was a movie about all the fantasies that surround sex and desire, you know, in all directions. And I think the sequence does an extraordinary job dramatizing that. Yeah. And incorporating all of these elements, or at least alluding to elements of like sex magic and Satanism and this, you know, heavily stylized, very grand ritualistic sequence. Um, like you said, I think it gives the audience a stronger feeling of the danger that Tom Cruise is in and the amount of power and influence in the room because it's so grand and intense. And it's like, you know, in this ballroom with a spotlight on the, the center of it. And if it had been a situation where it's just like, yeah, it's just a bunch of people fucking everywhere and maybe like a kind of nightclub bouncer pulls him over and roughs him up a little bit and says, you're, you know, if you ever tell anybody about this, you're <laughs> going to be in deep shit. It doesn't have the same yeah. intensity and it doesn't evoke the same feelings and make you think about like the, the power structure that yeah. could be behind something like this. And it's the same thing with or it's kind of the opposite in the scene with Sidney Pollack that it's so subtle. It's so it's a different kind of intensity 
where he's simultaneously saying, you are in such fucking trouble. You are in imminent peril, like moments away from death. Do not fucking investigate this any further. But then also being like, what are you talking about? Don't worry about it. Not all these things you're thinking are silly and offering all of these like explanations that don't really hold together. And if he were to dig any deeper, wouldn't really convince him. But peppering that with do not uh, investigate this any further because it will fuck you up. Yeah. Um, But said in just a totally conversational way, like I'm just a friend looking out for you. And it's so sinister. It's, yeah. yeah, it's incredible. Well, and, and that kind of attitude of no big deal, I assume that's what allowed Epstein to get away with it, what he did for mm. someone, right? Like the quote of Donald Trump's is like from 2002, something like, you know, I, I hear you know, Jeffrey Epstein likes, uh, likes women, like so a little on the young side or something like that. Yeah. He kind of makes a joke about liking young women. Well, now we know he, he liked underage women and girls and, the, you know, he was uh, breaking the law. Everybody must have known that, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, he was trafficking underage girls. But if you frame it as, oh, okay, he likes him a little young, a little on the young side, right? It's a way of minimizing and trivializing something that's actually horrific. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. That scene does an amazing job about suggesting you need to be really scared. You're in too deep. But also, this is nothing. It's no big deal, you know, mm-hmm. just a little just a little something. And, uh, you know, don't worry about it. Yeah. You know? And that attitude, I'm just thinking uh, because of Quentin Tarantino's new movie coming out, his uh, the leaked recording of his defense of Roman Polanski, which was essentially the same thing. But it's like, yeah, so this this girl was 13, but she she totally wanted it. It wasn't like he raped raped her. She you Is know, that she, Trump said that uh, t- Quentin Tarantino oh, Quentin said this Tarantino. about um, oh. Roman Polanski. And just saying, like, yeah, what's the big deal? Like, it was consensual sex. It's like they, you know, she she was into him. So, uh, and that kind of, like, it's, I don't even, I was going to say mental gymnastics, but I don't even think it's that complicated. It's like truly believing that consent yeah. is, people of any age are capable of giving yeah. consent. Consent, and, in, in, that, in, in that rendering, consent is something completely surface level. If somebody says, I want this, then mm-hmm. they consent, no matter yeah. how young they are. I mean, it's completely insane. Well, again, I think it goes to the title of the movie. I mean, it's such a mysterious title, but it makes so much sense that in desire, people's eyes are shut, you know, mm-hmm. that they're able to turn off their perception to fulfill their desire. But in reality, when you open your eyes, you see destruction, you see death, you know, and, and you know, towards the end of that movie, it's I think right before the, the scene between Pollock and Cruz, Cruz goes to the hospital because he reads in the paper about an overdose uh, of a former, I think, Miss New York or Miss USA or something. Another tie to mm-hmm. Donald Trump. Yeah. And um, and he and he sees this dead, cor- you know, he sees this corpse of this beautiful woman that he assumes is the woman who offered herself in his place at the orgy. So uh, again, we have an example of death intersecting with desire when you open your eyes, when you really look at what's actually happening. But then, yeah, the scene with, with Pollock where he's basically saying, yeah, keep your eyes shut, you know, in, in both meanings, right? Keep your eyes shut. Don't look any further, but there's nothing to see here. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing really going on. It's all, it's all a big joke. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. So like gross and terrifying, but such a, an incredible, incredible scene. Um, right. 
I feel extremely satisfied. Do you have any more? I mean, I know we both have many more thoughts, but I, uh, I mean, it's a kind of, you know, we could like do this again in a year. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. It's yeah. like the kind of movie that every time you watch it, you discover new things and it'll be fascinating to see how the movie continues to live in the culture. It feels ahead of its time to me. Mm. It feels very contemporary when I look at it today. It's like 20 years ago, but it feels just as alive and dynamic as ever. And, you know, with increasing awareness of sexual violence and the ways that elites historically have been able to cover up their crimes and are becoming less able to do so, it'll be amazing to see how the movie continues to live in the popular imagination. Yeah. I also think, I know that setting it um, or filming it in London wasn't a choice based on wanting to like recreate New York in a different place. It was, you know, he didn't, he was afraid of flying, but having that New York that's not New York adds this kind of timelessness to yeah. it, that it's like, you're not dating the actual city. Yeah. It's a, it's a set. Yeah. It's um, like a dream in a way. Mm-hmm. A lot of it does look fake Yeah, and that ends up really working. Yeah, and yeah. actually that probably works way better now than it did 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well done, Stan. R.I.P. <laughs> Um, so if people listening to this want to keep up with your work and what you're up to, what's the best way? I Mm. always think I'm going to go off social media. So I'm like, when this comes out, will I already have forced myself off it? But the, probably the best way, um, you know, I'm going to push my Patreon. I have a Patreon Mm -hmm. now. So I think it's just patreon.com forward slash Chris underscore Shin. And, um, yeah, I'm trying to like shift my social media towards this patreon it's only two dollars a month it's not expensive and i'm trying to do some cool writing there and uh and yeah so i'll say that and that may or may not be on other social media by the time you hear this yes (laughs) uh fantastic well thank you for chatting with me it's a pleasure as always uh yeah thanks again bye That was incredible! Thanks again to Chris for hanging out with me. Check out his Patreon. Check out his plays. In summary, check him out. Okay, so, recommendations for this week are from My European Travels. Ooh, exotic. Firstly, in keeping with the Kubrick theme of this week, I went to the last day of the Kubrick exhibition at the Design Museum in London. It was really great. It was a career retrospective focused on the design and production of his films, and they had a lot of props and costumes on display, as well as design sketches and production notes. There were a lot of fascinating tidbits about the development of all of his films, and it was really fun digging a little deeper into the creative process for such a meticulous and careful director. I know it's really shitty of me to recommend something that's already finished, But fear not, an exhibition focused on 2001 A Space Odyssey, which I could talk about for days, is coming to the Museum of the Moving Image in Queens next year, and it incorporates elements of the Design Museum exhibition. And I'll post lots of pictures on Instagram from the bits of the show about his other films, so it'll feel like you were there, kind of. My other recommendation is going to Barcelona and experiencing all of the Gaudi buildings and design. For anyone who doesn't know, I'm talking about Antony Gaudi, who was probably the most famous Catalan modernist architect. His work is 
unimaginably brilliant and bonkers, and I fucking love it so much, but the crown jewel in his legacy is his final, still unfinished work, the Sagrada Familia Basilica. I think anyone who's ever heard of Gaudi knows about Sagrada Familia and has seen pictures of it, but experiencing it in person was absolutely astonishing. It's like no other religious building in the world or any building for that matter. Pictures do not do it justice. It's, for want of a better adjective, insane. Each of the four faces of the facade are, or will be when they're finished, in a different style. One of them looks like, I don't know, a melted tree? And the inside is breathtaking. The use of light, especially through the stained glass, made me feel really emotional. It was a truly, truly incredible experience, and if you ever have the chance to visit it, you have to go. I know I said photos don't do it justice, but I'll just post some for you on social media anyway. I'm a little ball of contradictions, aren't I? Okay, kiddos, have you had your fill? Let's assume you have. Don't forget to follow me on social media at Spark Parade. And then why not take 30 seconds to write a cute review and rate the show five stars, pretty please? It'll be a barrel of fun and you'll be helping me out without spending any money at all. Yay for not spending money. All right, all right, that's it. Have a super fun week. Until next time, bye. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.